Welcome to the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers, Faculty of British Columbia podcast. We are a diverse coalition of Asian Canadian legal professionals. We promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Canadian legal professionals and the community. We foster advocacy, community involvement, legal scholarship, and professional development. The purpose of this podcast highlights the diverse and unique members of our community. We hope you enjoy our podcast. So today on Faculty VC's podcast, we're really excited to invite Justice Randall Wong. He was a trailblazer for many, many Asian Canadians in the legal profession. Specifically, he was the first Chinese Canadian to article outside of Chinatown, first Chinese Canadian Crown Counsel, both provincially and federally, first Chinese Canadian lawyer to appear before the Supreme Court of Canada, first Chinese Canadian judge to decide on a charter issue, specifically Section 24 sub 2, and finally, he was the first federally appointed judge of Chinese descent. Judge Wang, would you introduce yourself just very briefly, where you went to elementary school, where you went to high school? Well, I was born in April of 1941, and in 1947, I went to elementary school in East Vancouver called Lord Nelson, which was located at Charles and Nanaimo. Our family lived outside of Chinatown at that time, 1954 William Street, just about a block up from Victoria Drive. At that time, there were three Chinese families had children attending Lord Nelson. We all got along very well. After grade six, I was slated to go into Templeton, where my family moved to the west side at 37th and Ash, just off Canby Street. I then attended Point Grey, which was a junior high school at that time, in Carisdale. So I had to take the bus from along 41st down there. Even at Point Grey, there were only three Chinese families because the students were primarily children of greengrocers that had stores on 41st Avenue. After grade nine, Sir Winston Churchill Secondary was built and we happened to be in the catchment area, which was at 54th and Heather. Even then, there were still only three Chinese families Of course, that's much different today. It was a wonderful school. Everyone got along. There were many Jewish families that had their children attended there. Many of them became some of my best friends. We went into each other's homes. I knew their parents. And even after many, many years, we still continued with many of my associations with these Jewish families. After high school... What was the next chapter of your life? I went to UBC, and I had aspirations to study law. And I will tell you how I got involved in that. It was when I was still at Point Grey, I guess I was in grade 8, and the school counselor had a session with me and said, young man, what do you think, what would you like to study when you grow up? I said, I really don't know. I'm only 14. (laughs) So he said, well, let's take a look at your marks. Overall, you've got a pretty good average in there. He said, you're good in sciences and also in English and in social studies. Are you interested perhaps in medicine? I said, I don't think so. He said, okay, we'll look at the other things. How about law? I said, I've never considered that, but I'll certainly discuss it with my dad. So I did discuss it with my dad, and my dad was this 
of course, a self-employed businessman who operated the iconic Ovaltine Cafe near Maine and Hastings. I asked him about that, and he said, studying the law is probably a good thing because even if you don't become a lawyer, having studied law, it would be useful in business. So that started me basically on the road to studying law. I had aspirations really to study business and law, so I ended up with a double degree of Bachelor of Commerce and Bachelor of Laws. I thought of myself as basically going into corporate and securities and accounting. What was the motivation to go into what we now call solicitor's work as opposed to litigation? I think that had to do with my articles. I was the first Chinese-Canadian to article outside of Chinatown. I applied, and some of the lawyers at the firm downtown knew my paternal uncle, who happened to be one of the first notaries in Vancouver, the late Kwan H. Wong. The firm was Russell and Dumont, now today Fast and Smartwheel. They were located in the Credit Foncier building across the street from the Vancouver Club. They accepted me for articles, which I thought was wonderful. And of course, like most major firms, and it was one of the largest firms in the city, I think they had 35 lawyers, and they occupied several floors in the Credit Foncier building. In any event, in your articles, you would be going through various departments, both in business, real estate, wills, and so forth. But one thing that was interesting was that one of the senior partners, the late uh, Wilfred Heffernan, was the federal crown agent for narcotics offenses for the federal government. And every student who was articled had to spend at least two months with him. He never went anywhere without an article student. So that was a wonderful experience because Mr. Heffernan had an RCMP car driver taking him around from his office to the various courts. So during those two months, I was exposed to not only the juvenile court, which was located in the east side of Vancouver, also the criminal court in downtown Vancouver at 312 Main Street, and also in the county court, and in the Supreme Court, and also the Court of Appeal. I then became interested in litigation as a possibility. Then I was also told that in the firm were some of the senior lawyers had been former provincial crown prosecutors. They advised me that one of the best things if you want to be a litigator is to do some prosecution experience so that you're in court every day. And being in court every day is like piling up aviation time as an aviation pilot. The more time that you are in court, the more comfortable you are, and you certainly learn your rules of evidence and how to think on your feet and respond. That sort of interested me in that regard, as far as into litigation rather than my original thoughts of being a business solicitor. When I was called to the bar in 1967, I was looking for a job. And one of the lawyers who had just joined Russell and Dumoulin was Tony Pantages, the son of Peter Pantages, who started the polar bear swim. Tony's father, Peter, also was a restauranteur who operated the, the Peter Pan Cafe, which was located at Drake and Granville. It was there for many, many years. 
and a well-known restaurant. And in any event, Tony was previously also a provincial court prosecutor. And when he joined the firm, and I also juniored him in going through the various courts, he has also, in his earlier years, he was also a crown prosecutor for Burnaby. And he contacted the city solicitor, his former boss, as to whether there was a position. And of course, Bill Sterling was the man. And he said, Tony, if you vote for him, tell the young man he has a job. So that was my first job mm-hmm. as a provincial crown prosecutor. And I was the first Chinese Canadian in Canada to attain that job. What was it like being the only Chinese Canadian? How did your colleagues perceive you? How did you interact with them? Well, as young lawyers, I, of course, tried to learn from my seniors. And I had a good experience in Russell and Dumoulin, where I article, because many of those senior lawyers were litigators. Basically, I think the key is to try to emulate what they do. One of the things they instructed me is that when you find out when the seniors at the bar are appearing in court, you go into the courtroom and watch them perform. You learn basically like a form of osmosis, how to react, get to know who the judges are. Someone once said that a good lawyer knows the law, but a great lawyer knows its judges. That's very true. And at that point in your experience, did you have any idea or any intention to become a member of the judiciary one day? The answer is no, because I was really interested in being a prosecutor to learn the rules of evidence. During my prosecution, I met basically all of the criminal defense lawyers, the young ones and the senior ones, the leading ones. I had many chats with them, and we got along very well. As I said, it's like a form of osmosis. And they also told me that when you watch trials being conducted by senior lawyers and other lawyers, you learn what to do, and more importantly, you also learn what not to do. That was very important. After a couple of years at Burnaby, the Federal Department of Justice opened up a regional office in 1968. I knew some of the senior lawyers who were there, and one of them asked me if I would like to join the Federal Department of Justice. I thought that this might be a good avenue, so I applied, and they did hire me, and I became the first Chinese Canadian hired by the Federal Department of Justice in Canada in 1969. While prosecuting there, I appeared in all of the courts in the Lower Mainland. One day I could be in the juvenile court, the same as Mr. Heffernan, who was the Crown Agent. By the time the Department of Justice had a regional office, they were still using Crown Agents, but the regional office basically took over the prosecutions. So I could then the next day be in provincial court down on Main Street, and another day I could be in the county court, I could be in the Supreme Court on judicial reviews, and having juniored a couple of times in the Court of Appeal, I also appeared in the Court of Appeal by myself. One thing that the senior lawyers always advised you is, before you do an appearance in the Court of Appeal, make sure you junior there at least two or three times, so that you know who the judges are and what the expectations are. And that was good advice. After I was at the Department of Justice in Vancouver for a couple of years, the then Minister of Justice, who was John Turner, wanted to create a federal crown office 
and Whitehorse in the Yukon. So they sent out information for people to apply. A number of the seniors said they might be interested, but then later found out that their spouses would not move to a Whitehorse. So they declined. <laughs> yeah. And they encouraged me to apply. And I said, I'm only a junior lawyer. They would consider me. Mm-hmm. So I put in an application anyways, just for the heck of it. And then I get this call from Ottawa from an assistant deputy minister who said, the minister is interested in appointing you to be the crown attorney for the Yukon and to open up a federal office there. But you have to go there for at least three years. I said, well, I'll have to check with my wife because I haven't even told her I had applied. So anyway, she was agreeable and she got a teaching job up there. I went up there and I was then at the age of 29. I was the first Chinese-Canadian crown attorney and the first chief crown attorney at Whitehorse Yukon. During the time I was in the north, I traveled all over the north, both in the Yukon and in the Northwest Territories. I was also the crown agent for British Columbia in northern BC. So I did prosecutions there at every level. The British Columbia Court of Appeal was also the Court of Appeal for the Yukon. So I was also a member of the British Columbia Bar, the Yukon Bar, and the Northwest Territories Bar. I traveled all over the Western Arctic and the Eastern Arctic also. And as many times when I was in the Northwest Territories towns, they didn't have courthouses, but they had held court in the community centers. And a lot of the people there, especially in the Northwest Territories, in the Eastern Arctic, were Inuit. And when they first saw me, they thought I was one of them. So I had to say, well, no, I'm ethnic Chinese. So anyways, that was a marvelous experience. I also did all the council work and the appeal work from the Yukon in the BC Court of Appeal in Vancouver. So I had to go back and forth. I spent three years in the Yukon and expanded the office. And I had a wonderful experience there. It was a major professional stepping stone. I returned to Vancouver in the middle of 1973, and I thought I might switch over to the civil side, gain some more experience with the Federal Department of Justice. When I got a call from Victoria, then the Attorney General, Alex McDonald, this was the Dave Barrett NDP government, were interested in perhaps having more diversity reflected in the provincial court. I got a call from Mr. McDonald as to whether or not I would consider an appointment to the provincial court. Maybe that was because I was prominent as a litigator in the courts, the only Chinese, basically, at that time. And so I did accept. I was sworn in on April the 1st, 1974, at the age of 33. As a provincial court judge in Vancouver, I also became involved in the Canadian Association of provincial court judges, which is national. And British Columbia, actually in the provincial court, had a good chief judge and senior people who were interested in continuing judicial education. At that time, there was no judicial training for people who became judges. One day you're a lawyer, the next day you're a judge, and you go on from there. But they started the bar with continuing judicial education. British Columbia was a pioneer, and I got involved with the core that was involved in that, such that I'm the executive of the National Canadian Provincial Court Judges Association, 
they asked me to be their education chairman. So I was responsible then for creating the curriculum, along with many others and judges in every province in Canada, to set up sort of a new judges school so that every provincial court judge appointed across Canada would be going to this new judges program. I remember talking to Chief Justice Paribus, who was the Chief Justice of British Columbia at that time. I told him about this new judges program. And he rather affectionately said, you mean this is no, this is the dumb judge's school? And I said, well, that is an endearment. So I passed it back on. So it became colloquially as the dumb judge's school. So every new provincial court appointment had to go through that school. So I traveled. I was given some time off during that time as chairman. They took turns hosting the new judges program. It was held in Vancouver. It's held in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Ottawa was highly desirable because we would also have as speakers members of the Supreme Court of Canada right. to speak to the new judges. So it was a very exciting thing that was new. And as I said, British Columbia was a pioneer and then it spread across Canada. I did that for seven years as a provincial court judge. And I also continued to become a deputy provincial court judge in both the Yukon and the Northwest Territories. So not only did I prosecute there as a lawyer, but later when I became a provincial court judge, I also went on circuit throughout the North. So I think it was in 1981... I had a case, they had a bylaw in Vancouver against anti-poster. So the bylaw, as I understand, basically means that you had to obtain permission in order to post events in public spaces. Of course, what they were doing when people were posting, they never took it down when the event was. They also did a lot of posting on telephone poles, mm-hmm. which were, back in those days, there were wooden telephone and this was before they had those mechanical lifts right. to get the workers up to the top of the pole. So they had to climb up there. That made it sort of dangerous yeah. if the telephone poles were all plastered with posters. If I recall correctly, there ended up being a prosecution against an individual by the name McLeod. I think he's sort of the guy who now runs the startup, the McLeod book, secondhand book. <laughs> it's around Pender and Seymour. In any event, He was prosecuted for that, and he tried to argue that there was a history of posters as part of the common law, and he had a right. Now, bear in mind, this is pre-charter. So I had heard the evidence of this, and I reserved judgment. In any event, I guess it was about September or late August in 1981, I released the judgment. Globe and Mail picked it up as a headline on the front page. You know, that anti-postering was not protected. That sort of caught the headlines across Canada. And I remember the Canadian Bar Convention was held in Vancouver at that time. And as a young lawyer, I always attended the Canadian Bar Conventions too, which was a very good experience. I remember the Chief Justice of Canada, Bar Alaskan, was sitting at one of the sessions with the Chief Justice Alan McKechnie of the British Columbia Chief of the Supreme Court. I happened to walk by and Chief Justice McKechnie, of course, was formerly with Russell Dumont. Mm-hmm. He introduced me to Chief Justice Laskin, and Chief Justice Laskin had the Globe and Mail paper, and he said, oh, this is very interesting. <laughs> About a week later, I get a call from the Minister of Justice office 
and Minister of Justice at that time, Richard Cartier, and his executive assistant phoned me up and said, your name has been suggested to put forward for the minister to consider a federal judicial appointment. Of course, then he asked the skill testing question, which was, would you take the job if it was offered to you? They had already done a background check and everything else, and I said yes. And it just happened that by coincidence, I had to go and see Chief Justice McKechnie at an Indian man on something else. Mm-hmm. So I went down to his office to have an appointment to see him. One of the first things he said to me was, did you get the phone call yet? And I said, yes, I did. And he said, it won't be long now. Sure enough, after the Labor Day weekend, I get this call from the Minister of Justice, Chan, that I'm on the payroll. At that time, I was 40, so that's how I got the first appointment as a Chinese-Canadian federal judge appointment. Were there any celebrations within the Chinese community recognizing oh, this? Yes. Oh, yes. At my swearing-in ceremony, Douglas Jung, who was the first Chinese-Canadian MP and a senior lawyer, asked for permission to speak. At that time, the only lawyers who were invited to speak when a new judge was sworn in were representatives of the Attorney General of British Columbia, the Minister of Justice, President of the Law Society, and the representative of the Canadian Bar. And Douglas Jung, sensing this moment, spoke to Chief Justice McCaffrey and asked whether or not he could attend. McCaffrey said, of course. So Doug John rolled up and he spoke at that mm-hmm. time. And in the audience were also Auntie Joe, whom I knew for right. now. And Auntie Joe, of course, was the first Chinese Canadian yeah. admitted to the BC bar in 1953. So he was there. Doug John spoke very glowingly and said that this was a major advancement for diversity and so forth. After that, he gathered up a number of the Chinese-Canadian lawyers and hosted a, a dinner amongst the Chinese-Canadian lawyers. And actually, at that time, I think there were about 40, most of them actually practicing in the Chinatown area. We had a great time. And then after the dinner, Chinese-Canadian veterans were having a dinner in Chinatown. Doug Jung was expected to appear. Doug Jung was also a, a veteran of World War II. So he brought me and introduced me mm-hmm. to the veterans and their families there. And that was a major thrill because it was through these veterans that caused the change in the voting laws so that Asians could vote. I thought it was a very memorable experience. Just getting to that moment in your life, you probably had many mentors. Were any of those mentors Chinese Canadian and specifically Chinese Canadian members of the bar? Yes, Doug Jung was one. Doug Jung and Andy Joe were the two of them I really think stood out. Doug Jung, because I saw a lot of Doug, and he had good time for younger lawyers and helped and gave them advice. Mm-hmm. Of course, he had a practice on Columbia Street where his office was. As a matter of fact, he gave me a set of Canada statutes, which he received when he was an MP. He and I kept in touch all through the years. Andy Joe also, too, because Andy was a well-respected practitioner. Of course, he was the first. He practiced in Chinatown, the firm of Hood and Joe. And Andy was like the old-time practitioners. He only charged the clients what he thought they could afford. 
he had no set price, and he charged them what the work entailed and what he thought they could afford because he didn't want to turn them down. So he was very well respected, as were that generation of lawyers, whether they were Chinese or not. Basically, a lot of the lawyers at that time charged what they thought their clients could afford. Sometimes they didn't charge them at all. They thought it was a privilege cost. Sometimes with their wealthier clients, they charged them more. If they were successful, that's how that generation of lawyers really operated. As I say, there were certainly some wonderful role models. Anything in particular about those mentorships that just made them different from the mentorships you had with non-Chinese Canadians? I think they were the same, simply because, don't forget, when I got started as a prosecutor, there was no formal legal aid. Lawyers just volunteered, and you were on the list. It's pro bono work. And then, of course, later on, we had some criminal defense lawyers who did only legal aid. But that time... They used senior criminal lawyers to be prosecutors in their assize work, that is, their jury work. If you happen to be a junior prosecutor, you junior them. So you were mentored by these people. Some of these senior practitioners, they were special prosecutors. They were in private practice, and like the English part, they both prosecuted and defended. So we had those fellows as mentors, too. We're talking about it in the, in the 70s. This is when we had more women lawyers coming in, and that was a good experience. Basically, of course, I think those women who became lawyers thought they had to be as strong and take no guff as men. In other words, they weren't going to be law followers. Some of them were pretty strident, but as we began to get more women coming in in the 80s and the 90s, some of the senior lawyers mentored them and said, why don't you utilize your femininity? Some of them really were smart in doing that. Mm -hmm. That's actually an excellent segment. In your years as a judge, do you find that there's only one cookie cutter model for effective advocacy or can effective advocacy appear in many forms? I think mentorship is very important. The best advice I can give to young litigators is if you see a senior lawyer that you admire and you get that person to be your mentor and stick to him or her like glue because you model your behavior after that person because it's a person you admire about how they conduct themselves and the advice they give you and similarly the profession back in my day and i think the tradition still stands if you have a problem in practice and you would like to discuss it with somebody, and there's nobody in your firm that has that experience, feel free to contact that person. Mm -hmm. That person will listen to you and basically give you some advice. And that was always the tradition, the fact that you wanted to know. And when I was a young lawyer with the Federal Department of Justice, and there was a problem that I would discuss with some of the senior lawyers, and they said, we don't have the answer to that. Why don't you phone up so-and-so? who is a very senior private practitioner, and pose the problem to him and see what he has to say. Invariably, you would get the first-class advice. When I first became a judge, there were probably maybe 4,000 lawyers in the law society. Now, I'm told that there's probably about 15,000 members. And when I first became a judge, there were only three women who were judges. And now, I'm told that it's 
over 45% of judges at each level. Wow. And how about your time in law school at UBC Law? What was the makeup like for Chinese Canadians and for women? Well, in my class of 80, I think there were three Chinese and three women. Those numbers have changed drastically Mm -hmm. since. How did Judge Wang became the first Chinese Canadian lawyer to appear before the Supreme Court of Canada? There was a vacancy in the criminal law section in the Department of Justice in Ottawa because that person became a judge. The regional director in Vancouver asked for permission to send Vancouver lawyers to occupy that position in the meantime until they find that permanent replacement for that individual. So I volunteered to go. You had to go for three months. And this was late 1973. While I was there, there were a couple of cases that they needed somebody to take up the brief in the Supreme Court of Canada. So I was given the task, and it was quite an experience to be the first on behalf of the Federal Department of Justice to appear in the Supreme Court of Canada. It was just about that time, Bora Alaska came from the Ontario Court of Appeal. Brian Dixon had come from the Manitoba Court of Appeal, and there were others there. And of course, Justice McIntyre from BC was there at that time. That was quite an exhilarating experience. I won those two cases during those three months. And the first thing I did was I phoned my dad and said, guess what? I'm the first Chinese who appeared in the Supreme Court in Canada, and I was successful. So those are the two cases that I was involved in. Sometimes people say, do you worry about your judgments as a trial judge? I was always a trial judge, Mm -hmm. except for judicial reviews and some appellate work that I've done as a Supreme Court judge. But basically, it's like the bathtub effect. Each case is like putting a plug in the bathtub, the water rises, the case is finished, you pull the plug and wait for the next case. You take comfort in the fact that if you were wrong, there's a court of appeal. (laughs) So a bit of a safety net. (laughs) So... You do the best you can. And the main thing of being a judge is that there's no really room for levity. I would never, ever be critical of a lawyer in front of this client. I might take a recess and ask the lawyer to come to my chambers to speak to them about something. But I would never chastise a lawyer in front of their clients. And I would emphasize civility and of late, Perhaps maybe because it's its general coarsening of society, lawyers have also picked that up too. But I must say, from what my understanding, that's more of a problem in Ontario than in British Columbia. British Columbia has always had a good rapport in bar dinners and camaraderie amongst lawyers. When the Supreme Court of Canada a few years back mandated that the prosecution must give full disclosure and criminal prosecution to the defense. They weren't talking about British Columbia because British Columbia historically had always had that tradition of giving full disclosure before it was mandated by the Supreme Court of Canada. And as a litigator attending continued legal education courses put on by the Canadian Bar, I got to meet a lot of the lawyers across Canada. And later on, when I became a judge, likewise, at judges' conferences, 
it's a wonderful thing to be able to meet and deal with your professional colleagues across the country. You find out that not everyone does the same thing as they do in British Columbia. But British Columbia was always somehow ahead of the other provinces. What do you think is something that British Columbia can do moving forward to stay ahead of the curve? I think mentorship is very important. I once said it in the paper I wrote that mentoring is so important because after all it's said, that's the only thing that you can leave. That's your only key to immortality. I see. I had a follow-up question, actually, to something you said earlier. So you stated at the beginning of this episode that you're the first Chinese-Canadian student to article outside of Chinatown, and you also mentioned that some of your friends continued to work in Chinatown while you were working downtown already. Was there a particular reason for that? Was there a hard requirement that Chinese-Canadian students had to stay in Chinatown, or that was just the case that people always ended up articling and working there? I think because until recently... Most Chinese Canadian lawyers were solicitors, and perhaps they weren't fortunate enough to have the connection to do articles outside of Chinatown. Of course, that's completely changed now. And of late, you've had Chinese Canadian lawyers who have become prosecutors and got involved in criminal law mm-hmm. in the defense side. So that those are changes. With respect to the women, there's a larger pool for judicial appointments. Initially, when women were first considered for judicial appointments, had they not been women, I don't think they would have been considered because they were relatively junior. But over time, when you had a larger pool available and these women became senior lawyers, senior meaning 20 years or more at the bar, there was more to consider as eligible candidates for judicial appointments. We see that today. Mm-hmm. For people who are considering being appointed to the judiciary, there's probably an implicit or an explicit requirement that you have been called to the bar for at least 20 years, or at least you're senior enough to think about judicial appointments. But in addition to that, your level of seniority, what are some other ways in which a lawyer could prepare for a judicial appointment to make their application more attractive? I think there's a joke. Let's hear it. <laughs> the, the joke is, if you happen to be a senior lawyer, in practice. You have to check with your accountant, and your accountant will tell you whether or not you can afford to take a judicial appointment from an economic standpoint. I see. Judges are paid well, but they're not paid as well as senior practicing counsel. But if senior practicing counsel want a change in career, I'm looking primarily at the men in that regard. Women, I think, are a little different. They may want broader aspect of life besides the law. And perhaps they may think that a judicial appointment is easier than being a senior practicing lawyer. But the time that when I was appointed as a judge, it was regarded as sort of maybe a retirement job for senior lawyers. That's not so today. The volume of cases that I have to go through is horrendous. But if women think that they would like to do it, They don't have to worry about overhead and billable hours. And if this is what they want to do, by all means. And I have also encouraged a lot of women lawyers that I spoke to to consider working in government as lawyers. That is either municipally, provincially, or federally, because there is a defined benefit pension. Not only that, but if women are in private practice, it may be difficult to get sabbaticals when they have children. That may, may create some problems in private firms. Not only that, but women 
as their children start to go to school, they may be able to job share. I don't think you can do that in private practice. And a number of them, of course, after they become senior lawyers in the government, they apply to be judges. They end up then with double pensions. I see. Okay. So it seems like, you know, going for government is definitely one of the ways in which you could make that application a bit more attractive. And along with the benefits that you've outlined, I could see why people would consider a career in government before they transition into the judiciary. I think simply too, there's more women graduating from universities than men, particularly in the faculty of law and medicine. And demographically, it's true in North America that women who have university educations are likely to be earning more, to be the major wage earners in their families than their husbands. A lot of the men have realized university is not necessarily for them, so they go into the trades. And if they go into the trades, they do very well. When I was still on the court and we had the law clerks and couldn't really number them were women, that's usually the talk I give them. As a last question, I'm interested about your post-judicial involvement, especially with the community, and in particular with the Chinese Canadian Museum. The sense of belonging, the sense of community, how has that impacted your choices to be involved with certain organizations after you retired from the bench? Well, several things. When I retired in 2016, I had 42 years as a judge. I was the longest serving judge in the history of British Columbia because I got started in the provincial court and ended up in the Supreme Court. I also was the last pre-charter rights judge to retire from the D.C. Supreme Court. I was given the judicial nickname of Judicial Dinosaur. Judicial Dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) When I retired, some people have asked me whether or not I might do mediation or arbitration which some retired judges do. Even some of the law firms asked me if I might be interested in joining their firms. I said, thank you very much, but I think after 50 years in the law, I think that's enough. And I think I would like to widen my scope. So I made a deliberate effort to pursue other interests. And so for the first while, I registered for non-credit courses in downtown campus like Simon Fraser to take courses designed for retired seniors. So I took some history, philosophy, sociology courses, which I thought were wonderful, and it keeps your mind active. So when you're retired, the main thing is really what are you going to do with your free time if you're not going back in the law? And becoming a lawyer and a judge, is that was your career, that's your major identity. And if you're not doing that, you have to figure out what you're going to do. The main thing is you have to get out of the house. I also was asked then to consider joining some Chinese community services. I was always interested in military history, so I was asked to join the Chinese-Canadian Military Museum because of my interest in military history. Is that here in Vancouver? That's in Vancouver. Next year will be the 25th anniversary of its creation, Mm -hmm. and it was created to honor the service of Chinese-Canadian vets because it was through them that ultimately Chinese-Canadians got the right to vote and immigration ease for reunification of families. So we owe a lot to them. And 
that organization was created to preserve that memory and to educate the young in that regard. Then I also was made honorary president. I joined as an associate for the Army, Navy, and Air Force veterans of Canada. Even though I don't have military service, but I can serve because of my knowledge of military history. I'm also involved in there, so I'm currently the president of the Military Museum, and I'm also on the board of directors for the new Chinese Canadian Museum, which will formally open on July the 1st, 2023, at the Sang Building, which is the oldest building in Chinatown. And the Military Museum and its history is an important chapter of Chinese diaspora history in the province. So eventually, we hope to move from our present location in the Chinese Cultural Center on the Columbia side into the new museum, but will continue to operate as a separate entity, but in collaboration with them. So that takes up some time. And you may be interested to know that I think there's a newer generation of young Chinese Canadians who are interested in the revitalization of Chinatown. Like my daughter, Ainsley, is the first woman to serve on the Wong's Benevolent Association Board of Directors. Of course, she has two grown-up sons now, but she's quite active in the Wong's Benevolent Association because that's a site also of the Mongkin Chinese School. Recently, they've been offering Cantonese lessons to anyone who wants to take the lessons. And a lot of the students that enroll coming on Saturdays are non-Chinese happen to have Chinese partners. That makes me really happy to hear. I do feel like <clears throat> recently there has been a decline in Cantonese knowledge. And as we pass it down to future generations, I find it increasingly difficult just because the complexities of Cantonese <clears throat> offered. I do find that that's typically the less popular language that people tend to learn in comparison to Mandarin. Well, I'm also gratified because I take pride in seeing young professionals, especially lawyers, Chinese Canadian lawyers, do well because of what we were able to accomplish. And for my generation, the 1960s were halcyon days providing our generation with so much promise for the future. As I wrote in the BC History magazine, a sentimental Broadway musical entitled Camelot at that time epitomized our hopes and aspirations by its final lines. Don't let it be forgotten that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment, which was known as Camelot. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Justice Wong. I think today was a very fruitful conversation to learn more about your background, your journey to the judiciary, and what your post-retirement plans are. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much for granting us this interview and for your service in the judiciary. Of course, I can't speak for themselves, but I'm sure the recent appointment of Kevin Liu and Anita Chan, both of which are Chinese Canadians, probably would not have been possible without the legacy you left as a highly capable judge in our province. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and I continue to enjoy the success that the young people are accomplishing today. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Faculty BC podcast. Visit our website at facultybc.ca and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at BC. We hope you enjoyed our episode today and stay tuned for the next guest. If you have guest speaker suggestions, please email us at membership at facultbc.ca.